0: This summer, my family and I had the wonderful opportunity to visit um, the national parks in Utah. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been there, but we flew to Salt Lake City and then we drove south and we saw all five of what they call the big five. And it was amazing in a way that I had never experienced. I've been to Yellowstone, I've been to um, various other, the Sequoias, like I've seen all kinds of amazing things in our country, but. This was definitely a sight to be seen. And what was interesting as we were driving south from Salt Lake City to the corner of St. George, the hottest part of Utah, um, we saw a fire in the distance. And when we got there, we asked some of the locals if they'd had um, any fires recently. And they said thankfully that they hadn't been touched by the most recent wildfires, but like California, and other parts of the West, uh, Washington State, in the last few years, they have been really seriously affected by the wildfires. And it just made me so sad to think about this beautiful part of our country being devastated by wildfires. And yet, they also talked about how important it was, and probably what we saw was a controlled burn. And controlled burns are something I've heard of, but not something I was very familiar with. So I did a little bit of research this week and found that the idea of a controlled burn is something that is, is ancient. Um, it, it goes back even further than our country, but the indigenous peoples of our country have been um, doing controlled burns for as long as they've been on this land and have passed down the tradition of controlled burns from generation to generation. And depending on where they live in the country, they use the controlled burns for different reasons but specifically, what they call cultural burning, is a key part of the way that the native people have taken care of the land that we live on. Because these controlled burns will clear areas of overgrown underbrush, of dead grass, of dead trees and fallen branches, and as they clear away all of what is not good for the land, It opens up the possibility for more sunlight to come on the young plants. And this was very interesting to me. I hadn't even thought about this. It returns important nutrients into the soil through the ash more quickly, being able to penetrate the soil. And this image I thought of this week of the controlled burn versus the wildfires is the image that I I think really helps us to understand what Jesus is getting at in this passage today. Jesus says in the opening of our gospel passage, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it was already kindled. And the image of fire in Scripture has a lot of different uses at different times, but throughout Scripture, we see fire being talked about as a cleansing and a regenerative work the kind of thing like a controlled fire that is purposeful in the work of clearing away what is not healthy and good for the growth of the people of God and of creation and making way for a new kind of life to spring forth. Specifically, I think Jesus is talking here about the kind of fire that John the Baptist um, prophesied, or John the Baptist talked about, yeah, prophesied, when he was telling people who were coming to him to be baptized about a new kind of baptism that Jesus would bring. So Luke is the one who records this for us in Luke 3, and I'm just gonna read a couple of verses here. When people are coming out and waiting and expectantly and wondering if John is actually the one that they should be waiting for, the Messiah, John says to them, I baptize you with water, But one more powerful than I will come, the one whose thongs I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. And, And this one, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then John goes on to use this image. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but then to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so Jesus is talking about this kind of fire that he is desiring to come to the earth. He's, he's wishing that it was already kindled, that it had already done the, the good work that this fire is supposed to do. Because Jesus's desire and Jesus's mission is to come and make the earth only a place of thriving and growth and wholeness for all. And yet, when Jesus came to the earth, it was because we do not live in that kind of world. Every single one of us encounters every single day all kinds of ways in which we do not live in that kind of world. We live instead in a world of sickness and disease, of frustrations and even trying to do simple things in our life of our bodies aging, it lives even within us, in our relationships being more frustrating than we wish that they could be. And of course, on the large scale, we live in a world of war, of lies, of deceit, and this is not the way that things were made to be. There's a beautiful biblical concept of shalom, which I'm sure so many, if not all of you, are familiar with, and the idea is of wholeness, of thriving for all where no longer am I against you or you against me, no longer does my life in the world complicate the creatures of the world or the plants of the world, but we all live together in a beautiful harmony. In order to get to that beautiful, thriving world that God created for us, Jesus came to light a fire that would clear away all of what is keeping us from thriving. All of that chaff. And Jesus goes on then to explain in verse 50, he says, but I have a baptism to undergo and what constraint I am under until it is completed. So Jesus is referencing here, I think, this baptism of fire. Jesus' baptism is not the baptism of you know, a a child coming up here and having water poured onto them, although that is connected to Jesus' baptism in an important way that I'll reference later. But Jesus' baptism is his death. His death is the moment in which he takes all of that chaff, all of that broken tree, all of that overgrown underbrush upon himself and nails it to the cross, And from that moment on, breaks the power of those thorns that get enmeshed and suck out the life of the healthy growth. Breaks the power of death and sin forever. And then the mission from there is to do all of the unmaking and the remaking of the world. And that's the time that we live in now. So Jesus says, but first, he has to go through this baptism before the fire can do the good work. That it was set forth to do. And then Jesus goes on to say in verse 51, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. And this, I think, is where Jesus turns from the baptism that he will undergo to the baptism that each and every one of us will undergo. And again, I referenced a second ago that we think of baptism often as a really powerful and wonderful moment where especially an infant is brought into the family of God. And that is true, and that is important, and Scott McKnight has written a wonderful book on that, so that is a really important part of it. But what Scott would also point out in that book and elsewhere is that that baptism is the beginning of a work of cleansing of a person who is born into this broken world, becoming a part of the family of God who is undergoing this baptism of fire. And of course this baptism of fire is the fire of the Holy Spirit. And so it is the love of God burning so brightly that it is against all that is against us and will burn up all that is against us. And therefore, and this is, I think, the most difficult thing for many of us to receive, that fire does not mean the kind of peace that we think it's going to. But instead, that fire is the fire that leads to shalom. And I think Jesus is making a really important distinction for us here. And how could it be that the one who is called, who is prophesied to be the Prince of Peace, how could it be that the one who prays that we would be one as he and the Father is one would talk about bringing division to the earth instead of peace? Here, Jesus is joining a long-standing tradition of prophets. Like Jeremiah, who in the passage that we heard read today, says this, Let the prophet who has a dream recount the dream, but let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what has straw to do with grain? And here he's referencing that same idea of the chaff to do with the wheat. And then the Lord says through Jeremiah, Is not my word like fire and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? Earlier in Jeremiah chapter 8, when Jeremiah is laying the charge before the people of why God is not happy with the people of God, Jeremiah writes this, they, God's people supposedly, dress the wounds of my people as though they were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. There is something according to God's word, that is more serious than a so-called lack of peace. In fact, there are ways in which even the church can weaponize the concept of peace, as Jeremiah makes clear, in order to silence the cries of the wounded and the oppressed. God's people have unfortunately fallen into that trap since the beginning of going towards a kind of lack of tension, a lack of disruption, saying, and the prophets were, the false prophets were known for this, for saying, oh, God is not actually asking those hard things that you ask, that you think he's asking. He's not actually asking you to care for the poor or the wounded or the orphans. He's not actually asking you to sacrifice yourself, your, mo- your money, your time, your energy for others. No, no, no. And always the word of the prophet comes at that like a hammer to a rock and breaks it into pieces, like a fire that cleanses away those lies and remains true to the mission of God, which is to love the least of these, to care for the wounded, to take seriously the wounded among you and not to say to them, oh, peace, peace, you're going to be fine as though their wounds were not serious. Martin Luther King Jr. well described this phenomenon when he said, true peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice. Because Jesus came to restore shalom, true peace, to establish true justice for everyone, he did not come to merely bring the absence of tension. He is the prince of shalom, not the prince of thin, non-tension, when there's actually really horrible things happening underneath. And sometimes, as most of us know, establishing justice, putting things right, often at first brings more tension in order to make way for real healing. I uh, unfortunately grew up in a family, um, a dysfunctional family system, and my dad was a pastor, and he uh, kind of lived a, a double life where he was really charismatic, and people generally seemed to like him when he would speak and when he would, when he would talk with them in church, and then he would come home, and he was a very anxious person. I think that's where a lot of it came from, and it's super critical and always emotionally and verbally abusing my mom and us kids. And in fact, I I have one very distinct moment of uh, my dad talking to, and I don't know if this happened or if I recreated it, to be honest, but of my dad greeting people outside after the service. And then my mom came up to him and I don't know what the conflict was, but he whispered in her ear. And I would see him do this often at family gatherings and otherwise, and her face would just fall. And I don't know what he was saying to her, But he was living this (laughs) double life is one way to say it, or a more generous way to say it is that he was really, really caught by those thorns of sin and anxiety and selfishness. And I think his true self that God made and was trying to bring forth that really loved people and that people kind of got a glimpse of when he was being charismatic was just being choked out. And eventually, it came to the place where my mom had become almost like a non-person. She really didn't have much to say to people at church, and um, we all became sort of like those wounded creatures um, who have been like a, a wounded animal who had experienced some trauma. And then came the time when I was about 15 and my mom uh, started working somewhere in a counseling center, actually, and some of the therapists there learned about her story and started to tell her how damaging it was what she was experiencing. That it actually wasn't her that was the problem in every moment and situation. Of course, she had her own part to play. But that my dad, out of his own woundedness, was just turning and wounding her over and over and over again. And at that point, my mom had to make a decision. If she was to keep living with my dad, the only way to have peace in our home was to go along with my dad's rules and the way that he needed things to to work. That was how he managed his anxiety. But if my mom wanted to get to a place of healing, really her only option was to tell the truth to my dad about the way that she had experienced the wounding. And she did, and it was horrible. (laughs) and my parents ended up getting divorced, Um, and I am not in any way, please, I'm not in any way uh, denigrating the sacrament as I stand here with my stole of marriage. I am not in any way simplifying the story by saying all she needed to do was get divorced. In fact, um, it is very sad to say, but my mom still carries those wounds around because she has often retreated back to be that wounded animal. But recently, as I've become a pastor of our church, many people have asked me, how is it that you are this leader in our church and you seem so, and this is their words, not mine, so, so healthy in your own family and relationships? And, um, and I say, I look back to that moment where my mom stood up and spoke the truth about our dysfunctional family system. And then I later in my own way with my dad told the truth about our dysfunctional family system and it created the break, the burn that had to happen in order for me to get the space to heal. And now the wonderful thing is I have more of a relationship with my dad than I ever thought was possible because I was able to get that break and get that healing and tell that truth. That is, unfortunately, the reality that is before us and the work that Jesus is about in our world, that he, in his fiery love, wants for all of us to be whole and to be healed, wants our relationships to be whole, wants our creation to be whole. And sometimes, oftentimes, because we're so committed and become, have become so comfortable and familiar with those thorns that surround us, it's going to feel like a fire on the chaff, or it's going to feel like a hammer on a rock when that healing comes to us. And so Jesus goes on to describe this, this kind of tension. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. And then to make it clear, he moves on to say they'll be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Now, in the, the time that Jesus was speaking, um, family was very important, and family is very important to us today as well. And so I'm sure that Jesus's first listeners were thinking something like we are, like, how is it that good news could bring such disruption that just simply does not make sense? But the commentators that I read pointed out very specifically, Jesus's goal here is not to break families apart. Anyone who says, oh, I am separating from my family or my church system or my community um, because God told me to do that and I need to go off and be alone forever. That's that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is in the process of remaking a new community, a new kind of family, a new kinship. That's what baptism is all about. It's about that sign of I no longer am just a Richter, which is my last name, I am no longer just of German, and French, and uh, European descent. I am no longer of Oak Park. I am no longer even just a woman. Like, my identity is a child of God. And my brothers, and sisters, and my mothers, and fathers, and grandparents, and uncles, and aunts, and all the rest are the people of God. And our goal is not just to stay together just because. And I will say that is definitely something that my dysfunctional family system was all about. We're family. We don't do this kind of thing. We don't break apart. No, God's family, the recreation of God's people that Jesus is about here is a people who is founded on the true work of God, no matter what the cost. And then you look at Hebrews and you see what the cost is. It means all kinds of difficult things, being flogged, being persecuted, having people abandon you. I mean, the list goes on and on. Who would ever sign up for that? I don't know. (laughs) But me, but you, because the beauty of Jesus, the vision of new creation is so compelling that who would say no once you've caught the vision of it? And this is what I think the end of this passage is about when Jesus says these parables about when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say it's going to rain. And when the south wind blows, you say it's going to be hot. And then he says, you know how to interpret those signs. How is it that you don't know how to interpret what's happening right now? And essentially, I think he's saying, you would be foolish to not say yes to the work that I am doing. Jesus has set forth this beautiful vision of a new creation where people come close who are wounded, and you know what happens? They get healed. People come close who have never known love, and all of a sudden, they're strengthened to be these people of God who go after Jesus has gone back up into heaven and are persecuted and flogged and are rejected. The love of God and the work of God to remake the world is the only true thing going. Everything else is going to burn away. But this, this is the place where, if you look at your, your picture on the cover here, this is, the, this is Jesus speaking to the crowds, the Beatitudes. This is the place for the poor in spirit to come. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are so mad at injustice and lies, this, this Jesus, this is the place to come. The way of the cross, the way of Jesus, is difficult. And it brings the kind of strife and division that none of us wants. And the reason we don't want it is because we're not created for that. We're created for wholeness. But our invitation is to go with Jesus even through the baptism by fire and to find ourselves purified, renewed, remade, in his likeness. I want to end with this beautiful um, last couple verses of Hebrews 11 as our prayer. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, so many people who have gone before us and done this beautiful submission to the fire of baptism, let's just throw off everything that hinders us and that sin that so easily entangles all that's good, and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who was baptized before us by fire, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And that is where we are now, with Jesus. And that is where we are going. As we go through this baptism by fire, we will be raised with Jesus and all of God's people, all of those who are weary and burdened and heavy laden. And we will find our eternal peace, the real shalom. Amen.